Welcome everyone to twig number 204. We've got a packed house today for our uh, Matthew Ball Metaverse Book Club edition. In addition, we'll talk <laughs> PlayStation's Haven Studio, Overwatch 2, and uh, uh, Goof Around. Uh, all that uh, after a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. Let's pause this podcast for a moment because I need to talk to you. That's right, you. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. Exola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the funding club. Once they're accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games, games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources, while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club, putting the fun back in funding. All right, so how's everybody doing this week? All good in the hood. We have a big basketball tournament in Los Angeles this weekend, so we will report back next week. Um, unfortunately, the competition is pretty shitty, so we're going to pretty much destroy people, but we'll see. And then, um, and what was the other thing? Eh, not much. Otherwise, just cranking. I'm officially Bye, moved over to Seattle. Oh, congrats. So, like, yeah, I'm back uh, living in America. I have a coffee table and a bed, so I got progress. One more piece of furniture. Less serial killer, because at least yeah, you know I'm moving I have... away from American psycho to just American. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. So yeah, I am in. Uh, I'm in. Where are you, Eric? I'm in New York City. Uh, I uh, was at a conference yesterday, the IAB Interactive Advertising Bureau. I did a talk. Very nice, uh, and I'm flying back today, and then I'm going to Seattle actually on Friday for a wedding. So I'm not going to Seattle; I'm going to one of those islands off the coast. Um, but going to a wedding, I'm excited about that. Good friend of mine getting married; very excited for him. Uh, and then, yeah, and that's that's my life. A lot of travel. All right, let's uh, 
uh, thanks for covering for me last week. I took one day off to atone on Yom Kippur, not the entire week, as was implied uh, by Aircrest. But I, I did enjoy uh, learning about your experience going to uh, Temple Emanuel that I actually used to go to when <laughs> oh, I was in San yeah, Francisco. For, the, 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 yeah, there, there was some confusion on that. I am not Jewish. I am, I am absolutely not Jewish. Not that I wouldn't want to be Jewish, uh, but my, uh, my father... My father-in-law, he's like Sammy Davis Jr. of the Korean mm. community. He converted when my wife was 11. And so my, my wife, in some sense, was raised Jewish by a Korean man. Um, so he's the one that introduced us. And then, um, and then a friend of hers invited us to go. What's crazy about the Emmanuel thing is that that's like a hot ticket. Like for years, like it costs insane amounts of money or yeah. you have to, to donate yeah, you're, or something. You're, but because of COVID, I, I'm sure everybody really cares. But Jews only make one donation a year, and that's high holidays. <laughs> Unlike my wife, who's Catholic, makes a ah. weekly donation. Um, so the high holiday ticket is like your once a year donation. Yeah, but anyway, so because of COVID, though, it's not as as they let us <laughs> us uh, plebes come in. So anyway, all right, let's go um, to the news. To back the news. to the news. All right, quick. These are quick updates because we want to really get to the Matthew Ball thing. Um, uh, first of all, there was some really good news about hardware shipments. Now, this is total clickbait, and, and the analyst that is biased probably once is putting his book, so I'm, I'm putting it out there. But they saw a 400% increase in PS5 consoles in September. Um, if they can maintain this and actually sell these through, that is exactly what I is expecting is going to happen over holiday, which is really good for the console business and reinforces the whole thesis um, on the console business. Um, so that's good news. Uh, the second thing, which Meta announced this new AR VR headset, and I made the freaking mistake of telling my son, hey, whatever the new Meta device <laughs> is coming out, we're gonna get it. <laughs> and the shit, this shit is $1,500, you know? And I, you know, I may be a baller, but I'm not that kind of baller that's gonna throw $1,500 in the device. But then you'll we'll see. You can we'll see. Actually, I might it's be a, convinced. It's a but work anyway. expense. You could expense it. No, exactly. Um, but anyway, the, the the cool thing about the device it's it's AR VR. It's like you can be immersed in the in your world as well as, as be in in the VR space. Um, and but they're really pitching this as as a real productivity device. This is aimed at designers and architects and and creative professionals. But a lot, you know, the eye tracking is in there. Um, it, it, it looks pretty cool, but it is like the next kind of where they're headed is is most important about it. Um, uh, 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 Seaford, are you still there? He he stepped away. This one's really interesting. Right. To me. I mean, Laura and I were talking about this right before it started. You were looking at the weights, right? This doesn't seem like something you would want to wear on your face for eight hours. Yeah, yeah. That, I feel like they're trying to justify the weight with the features. I mean, it, you get sweaty. I mean, granted, you're probably not going to be moving around as much, but even after a while, you still get hot. And then with the extra weight, I just think if that was going to do one thing, I think they should have made it lighter, especially for that price tag. Well... Yeah, I, again, I think this is like a proof of concept for AR slash VR, right? So like the ability to be immersed in a VR space while actually still being around, you know, the, the world, right? That's kind of what my problem is with VR right now. So we'll see. Yeah, this, that's my my sense there is it's this is where, like that's the problem. The problem I have with the price point is like I'm sure it's a really fantastic experience. 
right? But I'm buying beta gear, right? Like this isn't at the end point yet. You know what I mean? Like we know that it's going to get lighter over time and more comfortable over time. And it's like, am I enough of an early adopter to want to drop 1500 bucks on a big computer on my face? That's going to be, you know, kind of uncomfortable to wear. Now, maybe I'm being unfair and it's very comfortable to wear. Right. But it just, it seems like it can't be because the quest two is already like at the limit to my mind. If, it feels like we're at the kind of Apple Newton stage of a piece of hardware <laughs> that'll eventually become the iPhone 14, but we're a ways. We're also, the notion though is also that it'll get in the corporations and that'll like sell it to masses type thing. That's another argument people have made in the past, um, which I think is kind of bullshit, but. Well, we'll I think see. like, so. I think it ultimately has to be a good consumer. So there's, there's a, but. So, I mean, I had written some notes about this, but like, so Ben Thompson had a good interview that he just published today with Satya Nadella and, and Zuck. And his point there that he made was like, well, if you think about the ways that PC penetrated the consumer market, it, it was because uh, you either had like hobbyists on the gaming side that, you know, had an Apple II or whatever, and then just continued on that path. But really it was when the PC became the go-to workstation for, corporate America, the go-to like working tool, then it, it, it ended up becoming something that they brought home, people brought home with them and introduced at the, at the family level. That was, that was his argument. Like, so it followed, it followed that kind of penetration trajectory. You know, I, I, these arguments, we were going to talk about this later. <clears throat> these arguments just keep coming up about how people have adopted things in the past, right? Like we're not in the past, we're in the present. And when <clears throat> adoption is, is, is done by the consumer now. Like consumer tech is huge, right? The iPhone and the and and you know smartphones were not adopted because of of, of companies yeah, no, right? giving them you, to the employees. Could, it's you a could make an argument thing. that smartphone penetration began with the BlackBerry BlackBerry because of workplace use, and then it became a consumer piece of hardware when a better thing for consumers, which was the iPhone, came around. And then Android got cheaper and broadened the okay. market. So looking at it not as a specific uh, but company, I, but as a continuum. No, 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 no. no. I, I actually don't follow that, but I, I understand what you're saying. You're, you're somewhat, but the problem is the BlackBerry is the old, old tech. You know, smartphones but are I, new tech, and that was introduced to the consumer. It was actually the the. the if you remember correctly, no one wanted the iPhone because they were worried about security. The reason that BlackBerry stayed around for so long is because they had such a secure yeah. uh, connection, right? They were worried about, you know, hacks and stuff. Anyway, I have a much we'll better get to it adoption later. We, argument we can... when we get to the end of the book. <laughs> You're going to love it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Overwatch. Um, Overwatch launch was an absolute train wreck. I mean, it was... As as bad as a bad as a launch can be, and unfortunately, it wasn't their fault. It was a DDoS attack, which I still don't really quite understand exactly what that means. But they basically crippled the servers. So the the, the headlines were horrific, right? You know, it's like Blizzard apologizes for rocky launch. You know, they're giving away a legendary skin because of a bumpy launch. This one was like Overwatch Two was an absolute disaster as players players outraged over Orwellian sign up requirements shutting down and the shutting down of the original title, and this last one it's like it took Overwatch two days to work, but I'm not sure it was worth it. <laughs> that's that's kind of my whole sentiment around this thing. Like, you know, a lot of this wasn't their fault. The game was actually a pretty high quality. I mean, it had an 80 Metacritic, and of course these reviews were done. 
before it was launched. <laughs> so, which is a whole other type of story, right? But if the reviews were done after launch with all this, this nightmare, it would have been far lower, I imagine. But again, this is exactly what I expected from this game, right? I mean, this is the last remnants of Activision's, you know, you know, mismanagement of Blizzard, this game. And what I'm hoping is that Diablo 4 and World of Warcraft don't have this fate um, and the new survival shooter that they're working on. But uh, those games look actually much better in, in much better shape than this thing was. Because I just don't think this game, no one really cares about this game, um, no matter what. I mean, they just basically created a game that's exactly the same and reset everything, you know, for the existing users that love it and then didn't really give anything for anybody that would churned out of it, right? Um, uh, the original game. So just, just doesn't make sense. Speaking this game. of, uh, um, Diablo, I just want to do a quick tease that, uh, we've got an interview coming up soon with Rod Ferguson, the head of the Diablo franchise and one of the most celebrated producers in gaming. And we're going to talk about what makes a great game producer. And I'm really excited for that interview. So that, that should be coming up in the next week or two. One more news story to, to quick one before we get to, uh, uh the metaverse talk. Uh, there was a story on Axios Gaming I wanted to highlight uh, from Stephen Dottillo that was new PlayStation Studio is trying to reinvent game development. And this was an article about Haven Studios, which is run by uh, Jade Raymond and has a lot of input from Mark Cerny, both big uh, industry names. Um, two quotes from the article. Uh, Haven Studios aren't just making a game. They're trying to craft a better way to make games by moving development into the cloud. Uh, Cerny explained their new methods would replace the status quo of developers needing to huddle around a monitor to compare notes or check their progress. And he said 30% of Haven's 115 or so developers are now working on cloud-based development tools, artificial intelligence, and machine learning with an eye towards streamlining development. So I just want to say, you know, good luck. Uh, it sounds fun. It sounds like I, I hope they succeed in, in making game development easier and make it easier for all of us. And just, I've been playing around with AI generated art and it's some of the most fun I've had in years. It's not making, you know, anything you're gonna put in a game, but it's so much, so goofy and so much fun to like play with Stable Diffusion. My top entertainment experiences so far of 2022, Vampire Survivors, Survivors, Miss Marvel, and goofing around with Stable Diffusion and making wacky art. So. Uh, I hope uh, they make some new amazing tools and I look forward to uh, eventual mind-expanding SIGGRAPH or, or GDC talk out of this uh, Haven team from PlayStation. The holy grail of game development. Procedural art, procedural game Procedural storytelling. I might do something good Wait, for you. We've been, I, I, I've had this conversation for the last, what, 25 years. But, you know, we're still, yeah. still cranking away. Uh, maybe the technology I'm, is getting there eventually. All I'm saying is eventually. it's fun. I don't think you can make game art with it yet, but it's a lot of fun to play around with. All right, so uh, uh, let's go to the big, the big main topic. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about the Metaverse book by Matthew Ball, and, and if we've got some more time, we'll talk about Facebook's Metaverse efforts. But uh, Chris, why don't you lead the way here? Okay. On this fourteen-hour. Yeah. So I'm going to try to set. No, 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 yeah, exactly. I, I'm going to try to set this up um, and have more of a discussion rather than me just going off on, you know, rants and tangents. But um, but anyway, this book, I think, is important. Right. And I, from the from the gout offset, I think everyone should read this book that's in the industry just for the, the sake of 
what it kind of articulates about the status of the industry and where we could potentially be going. Um, and as, as a caveat to all things, I can't read a book, much less write a book. So my, my you know, Matthew Ball, my hats off for hats off for you to create this book and doing all the research that clearly went into this book. So give give you kudos for what you've accomplished. Um, so again, I want this more to be a discussion, um, but I think a quick summary of what kind of how he articulates this is important. Uh, I, I imagine there's many folks like me that don't read that much and are not really interested in reading this book. So. I, I will, <clears throat> I will give it. I, I will give it a high level attempt. All right. So, <laughs> the book is in three parts, really. What is the metaverse? Building the metaverse, and how the metaverse will revolutionize everything. So these are the three sections, right? And and starting off, here's Matthew's definition of of the metaverse, which is important because I think definition um, are different for a lot of different people. My definition is completely different than this one, honestly. So. A massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that can be experienced synchronous, synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users with an individual sense of presence and with continuity of data, such as identity, history, entitlements, and objects, communications, and payments. So that's quite a mouthful. But basically, it's Ready Player One, right? I mean, am I wrong yeah. on that? Like, it feels... I agree. Like it's basically the sci-fi definition of the metaverse in my mind. Is that I've already said my definition on the podcast before, but I my and I, this is not written, so I'm going to basically wing it here. But I, my definition is completely different. I, I I think we just live in a multitude of of metaverses, and it's any social, interactive, persistent world, right, in which people are either playing or hanging out or whatever like that that's it i mean that's really what it is in my view and and that's why this definition is just so, too over encompassing so in my view. in your view both second life and uh roblox and before them muds those are all your definition of metaverse absolutely world of warcraft even call of duty just virtual even, social even virtual world candy crush right yeah yeah i don't know about candy crush so I, 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 I agree with Eric. Okay. I, I actually, oh, Eric's secret. I think that, yeah. So the the definition I think most people have is, and what I've read is that they want it to be like, you could say Fortnite or Candy Crush, whatever, is is an example of a metaverse. And I, that would make me very sad. I think it's too small. I, I agree that I, how I would define it is closer to how Matthew Ball defines it, that you can you can basically live in it. You can go to classes in it. You can you can shop for anything you wanted. It has a consumer side. It's it's much more than games. That that's my that's how I like to envision the end goal of what the metaverse is. I don't. Um, uh, I didn't really come uh, armed with the definition so much. Uh, I do believe that most of the time when, when people use the word metaverse, what they really mean is a virtual world. Um, and that's kind of how it's used. Most, mostly they're using metaverse to either mean virtual world or crossover brand collaboration. Um, I think that when people are picturing the uh, ultimate metaverse, it's basically a 3D version of the internet where things are taking place primarily in 3D environments and not through text, image, and video. Um, and so really the book, um, uh, talks about, 
uh, uh, interconnected 3D universes that you can move from one to another, that all your goods work in all them. And the, the persistent thing I thought was like, who even wants that? He's like, in the real world, when a leaf drops, if you move it and then you go away, someone else will find the leaf and find your footsteps. And that's what the metaverse needs. Like, who who wants that? Like, Ball's definition very much is like a digital world that has all the properties of the real world. And also you can switch seamlessly between other three into other 3D experiences where everything you buy works. And, and I just don't, that doesn't sound like something people I know want necessarily. They do want the holodeck for sure. But oh, that would be great. But one, one, one point with that, I think that there's going to be a use case where some people will want that. And what, what I think that Matthew is trying to, how I try to picture it is that you have these virtual worlds. You're going to have some people will do games, some people will do something else, but they all live within some sort of system that can handle all of these use cases. That, and that's where I think he starts digging into all this tech that just does not exist to support any sort of these use cases where we can kind of, if you can dream it, you can build it. And that's, I don't know, that's, so it's kind of the more the framework that supports, uh, that supports any type of uh, interactive, persistent, non-persistent experience that someone can dream up. Okay. I, yeah, man. Yeah. All right. Just moving on real quickly because uh, we'll get to more of the detail around. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know about this definition because I don't know if we'll ever get there. So anyway, but what, what what's really cool about this book generally is that he's done his research. There's no doubt. Like I, you know, reading through it and talking about the history of of of, of the internet and and I learned a lot about like you know like all these different standards, you know? And so when he talks about it, he's talking about the internet as it's just absolutely amazing that on the internet, you can basically go anywhere in the world and be, receive the same type of information, the same information, the same web page, et cetera. Like the fact that that actually works is a miracle. Right. Um, but, uh, but what was, was that movie? Oh, but, uh, and, but the, the, but the, the, but the fundamental problem, one of the fundamental problems I have with this book is it, 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 it it's, it's basically a really good treatise on where we are and where we may be going, right? But it really doesn't talk about all, it talks about more about the challenges of getting there than it actually the solutions, right? And so he basically outlines insane amounts of challenges, some challenges I never even thought of in terms of how we actually get to this metaverse that he's defined. Um, and so I, in some ways, I think the book should be where we are and why we'll never get to the metaverse. Like that, that would be a better like, t title for this book because he spends a lot of his time talking about the networking, the computing, you know, the virtual worlds, the virtual um, engines that need required interoperability, the hardware requirements, the payment rails, the blocks, all these different technology like impediments to being able to create this vision of, of the metaverse. And all of them seem uh, somewhat insurmountable um, particularly in the next like 10 to 15 years, uh, because once you start talking about infrastructure, right. And I don't want to go too deep into each of the things, but when you start talking about changing of infrastructure, whether it's networking and stuff like that, that takes eons, right. And you need a business case in order to make that happen. And I, I just, it feels like his vision of the metaverse can, can almost never be realized. What do you guys um, think? You know, my experience of, of listening to the book and I made it through, I think, I still four hours to go, but at least 10 hours of listening was it, it felt to me like there was a really great blog post or long form magazine article 
that was padded out with hours and hours of talking about everything happening in modern technology. Um, and that was just filler to kind of to hit a word uh, word count. Um, it was it was tough for me to listen to because of that. Um, I basically, uh, uh, but I, I did learn a lot in the section about his specific definition of the metaverse and all these different challenges, technology challenges and uh, compute challenges and manufacturing challenges of getting there. And I basically walked away thinking that many people are investing, blogging and doing R&D as though this snow crash style metaverse is five years away or less. But listening to these challenges and especially the challenges with the laws of nature and how fast light travels, like this feels very similar to Magic Leap and AR technology right? We're, we're running into problems with the laws of nature that I expect to be solved or cleverly worked around in our lifetime, but it feels like this metaverse or the holodeck is over 20 years away and people are investing and talking and spending like it's five years away. Um, and so I, I do think we'll see this type of immersive VR on cheap wearable technology within our lifetime, but, but not in the next five years. And, and I do also think that there are many things that he lays out in what his vision of the metaverse is around interoperability and persistence that require a lot of compute that are actually um, features that I don't think normal people want or demand out of their uh, immersive fantasy worlds and experiences to escape into. Let me... Can, can I poke a hole in, in the deep research or actually ask a question? Because everybody has a different area of expertise. I, I found that when he was talking about things I know a lot about, I saw a lot of holes or a lot of things where I'm like, you're not quite getting it right. Or that's totally wrong. Or like, I found myself when you talked about game engines, blockchain, payments and games, just going like, that's not right that's not quite right. That's not quite right. And it kind of gave me credibility questions that made me question the rest of the things I was learning about that I didn't know anything about. And so I wondered if that others have I, that experience too, or if I'm just an asshole. Yeah. The only comment I'll make on that is that there, a lot of times when he was discussing things, he was discussing the, the what and, and what, and, and the what stuff seems reasonably good, but the why was always off by a little bit, like in terms of why this company was doing this or why, you know, Nintendo did this or why, like, eh, I, I don't, I don't know if he was like close enough to it to know. I mean, he's a, he's young, right? So he wasn't even around right during this time, but like it clearly like he did his research and he found out the what, but the why's are a little bit off. Uh, that's the only thing, the comment that I'll make and nothing. I can't remember something, anything specific, but it was more like, you know, executives yeah. and what, what their strategies were. I'll, I'll give an, I mean, an example of like a credibility point for me. He said 2021's blockchain games were all bad because they can only be on the web and not on mobile. And like, you can have high production value 3D games on the web, right? The As you said, the, the why for why those were lower quality games was not because they were browser-based games. And so like there, there were all sorts of, Little things like that that kind of chipped away yeah, my right. personal confidence along the way. Sorry, I mean he—he's. This is the thing. Right. He's not a gamer. Like he's not worked in gaming before. So he—he's he, an intellect, and he—and he's a very highly intellectual person. Yeah. Um, but he's doing research. He's not—he's not, he's not right. lived anything. Like he doesn't have the experience. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, I, I can forgive that. 
he was blaming web games for the quality of the game and the nature of the game design. Whereas if you go play Mini Nations Battle Royale right now, you will launch in your web browser a 3D uh, Battle Royale game that holds its own against Karina Free Fire and Fortnite. And some, you know, it's not up to Fortnite's level of production quality, but you can see that web games are not constricted in their abilities the way he's laying it out. And so I just like, I found lots of arguments like that along the way where I'm like, eh. Yeah, right. Right. And and so when 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 he brings up things about game engines or payment, blockchain or payment, there were a lot of topics it touched on that I do know a lot about or that I did live through and it felt like close. Good good for an academic. You know, good this it didn't make me feel like the book was for me, but for like people in other industries who want to understand what's going on. And I think good enough for those people. Right. Right. Yeah. Laura. Whew. So uh, jumping a little bit back to um, what we were talking about the standards. I mean, I talked about this in one of the previous podcasts. I think, okay, jump uh, one point. I do think that throwing money at what we what the metaverse has now in terms of everyone's kind of getting into it, becoming experts, driving blogs. I feel like that is 100% based on not wanting to be left, left off, off the bandwagon and miss an opportunity than it is actually them researching and realizing what is existing versus not. Um, and I think there's one other, the, the whys kind of what touching on now, what makes me most nervous is we talk a lot about what's, what's missing and full disclosure, I didn't finish the book. I got about halfway through. We talk a lot about the tech that's missing, but I, I don't know whether he goes into, and maybe you can, you can fill this in for the end of the book, the social ethics about what, what's going to be needed to be able to have these in ways that protect users, but then also don't allow corporations to purely kind of ring everyone for profit. I think he touches on it a little bit in the beginning, but that part makes me the most nervous. And that's kind of sort of related to standards in that I, no one, no one appears to be, there's very few people that appear to be kind of looking at that aspect, which I think is going to be crucial um, down the line as we get go through these 20 years of uh, or whatever many years we need to reach the idealized metaverse that we were each picturing or by Matthew Ball's definition. Kind of like going down, this is the other, this is the first kind of like real thing I have issue with this. The, the way he's laid this thing out is the assumption, so this is a little bit more nuanced, but the assumption is that, that we'll have standards, the similar st the standards that we have for the internet that make it interoperable, interoperable worldwide. Like this is a huge ask, right? In my opinion, you know, and like now he may be saying, I actually, you know, this is a question for you guys. Is he saying that we need standards in order to reach the, you know, the metaverse that he envisions or that these standards, what I, what I took away was that he was, he said that these standards would kind of evolve, you know, it, in this world, right, that we're in, right, and so, so anyway, that that's kind of my big question here is that because comparing it to the internet is really hard because the internet was created where there were no business. Um, these standards that were sorry, I'm messing this up. The standards were created by government agencies and 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 um, intellectual institutions, you know, and they were built before there was any commercial interest whatsoever in the internet. So a lot of these standards were created yep. before all this muck. 
that we are in right now, right? So the idea that people are going to, companies are going to come together and create standards around the metaverse seems impossible, absolutely impossible. There are too many constituents, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Sony, you know, they're all trying to establish their beachhead with their own standards. They're close. And if you look at every other technology that's been embedded since the internet, right, whether it's smartphones, consoles, which well, not before the internet, but all these, all these things that had commercial interest, it's a fucking mess. It's a mess. It's a mess of all kinds of crazy standards, right? So, you know, I don't know if, if we're ever going to get there. And so the, so the, and this kind of leads me to the next issue that I have is that he doesn't really define how we get there. He basically defends where we're going and where we are, right? We'll talk about it in a minute. But um, I don't think we'll get to this this ubiquitous metaverse ever, right? And maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe maybe government gets involved. But then, do you really want the government dictating what the standards are for the for the metaverse? Um, that scares me as well. And I don't think. I don't think there are many people in the world that are going to want that either. So there's, this there's is my biggest, one of my biggest go gripes. Government dictates many, different governments dictate different parts of the internet and what can be done on it and what is illegal on it right now. You know, the internet is a different experience in China than it is in the U.S. And, you know, even though one can operate a, uh, a hidden dark web drug cartel, called the Silk Road on the internet doesn't mean it's legal. Like government is obviously is always going to have a, a role. Right. But again, they're not they're not determining standards of networking tech and and you know how people access the uh the metaverse, right? I mean a, a government you know, or... determines that only ATT is allowed to give broadband access in my neighborhood and that's the only provider I can buy. Right? Like that's governments everywhere. I agree, but I'm. Yeah. Just, no, I know. Sorry, I'm being. I'm but being they're not. Romantic. You're. You're right. I. You're saying that that a government. You don't want a government body being part of the international nonprofit standards board that determines the packet structure for how data is sent on like network clothing woven operated devices that power the metaverse or whatever's happening. Right. I mean, involved in your work and your social life and your. I mean, like setting up standards for that like if this the metaverse as he defines it like how are these standards going to be created right and built you know how are, uh, apple you think apple and facebook and google are going to like see the i guess it this is what i would love to talk to matthew about specifically like because he's probably talked to a lot of these people like facebook is building their own like the whole point is to build their own platform, right? Because they want to get away from Apple and Google, right? They want to like have their own thing. Like, how is that? And all the companies want to have that ability is to control their own fate and have control over their own platform. I just don't know how you eliminate that, you know, that um, capitalistic need, you know? So. I agree. I don't know either. This is my, this, this is my fundamental point. There is too much financial... There's too much money at stake here to create standards to operate between these big juggernauts of, of, of the, you know, the tech titans, right? Like the cat's out of the bag, man. Like there's too much competition for the, for the time and money spent by consumers to build, spend all this money building something that you don't have control over. It's, it doesn't even make sense, like logically for these companies to do it. And so the standards board thing, as I said, the, one of the podcasts is like, 
people that were at the meeting are just like laughing and snickering behind the scenes saying, this is fucking never going to work. Dude, we're not going to work with these guys. Like it's impossible. You know, like, so like they can say and they could do and they could do all this PR around it. But the, the reality of Apple working with Google or Apple working with Microsoft, I mean, it's impossible, right? I, I, am I crazy? I, 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 coming to coming to standards for this is is, is not going to happen, right? In in the way that he thinks. No, I, I agree. I think it's, <laughs> this is going to all be done retroactively. People, are, the goal is to be, be there first. To, it, I mean, that's how it's every. They're all focused around growth and revenue, right? So, they're going to worry about. I think the rest of it later. I think there'll be some. Go ahead. It, it, I think it's going to become an afterthought, and then I think it's going to retroactively have to be done, and that then it's going to be harder, right? So if 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 whatever monetization is done a certain way or not, whether whether it's socially acceptable or done in a way that thinks of the consumer, how do you? They're not going to go back and change tech to redo it. They're certainly not going to want to. Um, I don't. Know, I think we're going to run into issues for sure. Exactly. Like, there's no way these guys become altruistic after getting bitch slapped by Apple. You know, like, I mean, come on, like, let's get real here. Like, this is not the way the world works. Um, and that's why government has to get involved in order for this to happen. And I wish that's what I wish Matthew had gone into a little bit more about what it would take in order to get this his vision of the metaverse. Now, I will admit that my definition of the metaverse, I, I'm basically pushing my own book, right? Because I believe that it's just going to be a multitude of multi metaverses everywhere that that people are going to be interacting with these social experiences. It's not going to be a ubiquitous metaverse, right? And so, so, that's, so what you're saying yeah, is, part is of the actually we're going to have non-connected verses, not a metaverse that sits on top of them and then allows yes. Like, you're just like, well, it's going it, to... I mean, the same way that I can't use my Amazon account to shop on Walmart, the internet is oper interoperable to a point, right? <laughs> right? Yes. And, and Thank you. This Thank will be you. no different. That's what I'm saying. Right. Point. Right. All, all these different competing services, social networks, all this stuff coexists. Or the app economy, right? All you're doing is you're going into your phone and you're siloed into these apps, right? Like that's how people operate. And so this is actually kind of the next point is that a lot of this feels like streaming to me, right? Where you're building... You're, you're on the path of building something, you know, this amazing potential like product platform that doesn't necessarily have an audience, right? I, I just don't think the average consumer wants to plug into a virtual world to play Candy Crush, right? I just don't think that's true, right? And so people are interacting with Candy Crush on the phone because that's the most opportunistic way of interacting with Candy Crush, right? I don't know if a lot of people want to unplug from the world and 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 plug into a virtual. Now I do. I, I'm a hundred percent in. You know, when I'm seventy, like I would love to live my life in a virtual world, as I've said many times. But it's not it's not a coincidence that the two major books that focus on the metaverse are focusing on a dystopian future in which the government has collapsed and the world the EA and the yeah, U.S. is uh, is no longer a, a economic power, and the only like solace they have is to plug into the virtual worlds, right? And that both Snow Crash and Ready Player One were on the same kind of thing, right? Um, but I, I, again, 
I don't know if I don't know if we're going to see the wide adoption of this type of technology the way I, he anticipates I, it I gotta, to be. I got to push back on that one. All right, all right. I push back all, right. all you want, man. I, as I said, I am off right. in day no. one. Don't get me wrong. So I, my my yeah, only point is, I, I think the average consumer absolutely does want to unplug from the world, right? Like the whole, I, I, my, my theory is there are two things we want from entertainment, whether it's Fast and the Furious movie, a Star Wars show, a Game of Thrones books, or, or Fortnite. All, all entertainment, we're looking for two things. One is to enter flow states to make us forget that we exist. That is the ultimate form of joy, is a flow state where you forget that your body and your consciousness exist. And that's what we seek from <laughs> entertainment. And that's why we will, why everyone will want to jack into virtual worlds when they have the right uh, entertainment products on them. The second thing we want is social connections that make us feel part of a larger world. And a lot of the metaverse arguments are about that. But I, I think that's what people want from entertainment. So absolutely, they're going to want to escape into a virtual world. But it has to be cheap, high quality, immersive, as frictionless or less friction filled than our current entertainment available on everywhere so it's it's there are a lot uh going almost circling back to the beginning there are a lot of challenges to making that type of um uh experience where it's just as easy to jump into future virtual candy crush as it is to open up instagram and scroll through pictures right like scrolling through pictures on instagram is one of the most frictionless entertainment products and probably most minutes consumed in the world and and that's uh uh, that's the challenge is that it has to be that easy and frictionless to use. But I do think, I do think it's a basic need or desire, consumer desire. Sorry, Chris, I'm with Ethan on this one. And I don't think you need to have a government collapse to have, you know, someone consider <laughs> something dystopian. I feel like right. the bar is, is not that low <laughs> or rather not that high. I feel like there's, it's quite easy to have, to create a desire for escapism. I think you guys are, <laughs> <laughs> the dystopian future is is, is upon us. <laughs> no, I uh, no. Please, please let us all jack into the metaverse so we stop driving My, our cars around again. I, Can you please stop driving? Again, I I am not arguing. Sorry, I I want to be clear. I'm not arguing that people do not want escapism from their miserable <laughs> lives or or just even a an escapism life. to do things. That yeah, exactly. I'm not arguing that part. I, I totally agree with that. That's like the fundamental thing about interactive in general, why it's such a great form of entertainment. What I am arguing is that like going into a ubiquitous world that, uh, you know, that is created for the masses as opposed to created for your interests. That's where I just kind of disagree. I don't think that's the type of escapism people want necessarily. Right. I don't know. I don't see the evidence of that, you know, in the sense that a lot of these like worlds that exist now like world of warcraft and, and and others are just very niche in their nature and i think that continues like just a bunch of different niches um all right moving on um the uh the last issue uh again i think i already mentioned this a little bit is that he really spent a lot of time about where we are uh which i thought was good uh, uh but and also like the vision of where we're going Right. But he really never even discusses how we actually get there. Right. A little bit at the end. I think he discusses it, but unclear as to how these standards are going to be created and how like all these companies are going to start working together. Like, you know, does government need to get involved Do like, you know, standards boards like 
And so maybe he's just saving this for all his consulting fees, right? <laughs> Over the next 20 years, right? But I, that would be an interesting understanding of like how he thinks we can get there from where we are to, to all the challenges that he outlines very articulately, by the way, um, and then and, and how we get there. So that that was kind of my other thing. I, I that, that seems like, Kind of a bit of a no mission. You also but, weren't you frustrated you by the lack of how do we get customers on board? Oh, that too. But like, yeah. I, I mean that. But that's. I the, wanted like, to bring that one up because that's the one I think I have the most fun argument about. But on on why he doesn't talk about how we get there is, I think it's because nobody in the world knows how we get there because it's unclear because we literally need to circumvent the laws of the universe. Uh, in order to create this technology and nobody has the answer. And so I think that um, if you hired uh, uh, this person, this author for consulting because you thought they were withholding the answer, my guess is you'll find out. He'll say, nobody knows the answer yet. It's your job to discover it. I want to talk about consumer adoption because I, I didn't finish the book, but I'm guessing this was missing in it. And and I think it's critical to talk about. Um so first, I, I have to drop a content warning that I'm going to acknowledge the existence of adult entertainment content. So if you do not want to hear mm -hmm. any talk of adult entertainment content, skip ahead a couple minutes or, or stop listening. Um, that content warning out of the way, I do think it's neglectful for a, a book of this uh, width and this scope not to talk about pornography's massive role in technology adoption. Um, there are two things that are critical to spreading of new technologies like the internet and other communication media, right? Pornography and other sexual media is one of the primary use cases that drives adoption for new communication technology. Interactive entertainment is one of the other. So I think if anyone wants to be truthful about human nature and how VR is gonna get into people's homes all over the world, they have to predict that pornography will be the tip of the spear for many people and many households for the adoption of immersive VR technology. I, I I'm interested. I'm interested in the hate or the uh, the the the, uh, the thoughts of the audience on this one. I'm sure they're going to be like screaming at the top of their lungs, but we'll, we'll see. I know people's definitions all change, but I think I again the good thing about this book is it kind of sets the line in the sand. It defines the way he envisions. This, the metaverse, what the challenges are currently, which there are a lot, some that I never even thought of, including, you know, just just the, the protocols that need to be changed, latency, the, yeah, the, the light speed, you know, like, like physics. <laughs> so anyway, I think it does a great job of that, great job of the history, great job of where we're going. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how close we get there. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. More power to Mr. Matthew Ball, who has done yeah. a great job. Um, yeah, for, for all my criticisms, there was a, an a immense amount of work clearly put into this book. And I think uh, a great primer for people, depending on their uh, level of, of existing knowledge. Um, and, uh, you know, he wrote a, a great, you know, a great, well-reasoned book. And I didn't. So uh, hats off to him. I did also learn a lot. And I really <laughs> enjoyed uh, this discussion with, with the three of you. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. 
If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.